Hi, Babarella. How you doing today? My name is Will Wilhelm, and welcome to Tea Cakes and Tarot Conversations with Queer Futurists. If you're joining us again, thank you so much. If this is your first episode, welcome to our space. I'm going to introduce you to a queer theater maker that I am obsessed with, tell you all about my crush on them, and they're going to share some smarts, some heart, and some laughs. If you're ready to journey forth, find yourself back here in the space between. My guest today in our wonderful space is an actor, a director, and recently became the associate artistic director at not one, but two theater companies. She's a huge talent. So many of the artistic moments that I've experienced, both from her acting work and her directing work, are sitting with me and carried with me today. My guest is the phenomenal Sarah Bruner. Our conversation was originally recorded on November 11th, 2020. Hi, Sarah. Hello. How are you? I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm, um, I'm really happy and humbled to be here. So thank you. I am so happy and humbled that you are here. So that makes two of us. <laughs> I, you are an incredible performer, someone that I uh, looked up to from the moment that I met you. Um, and I know that I'm not alone. I know that that's a common feeling. Um, and something that, well, one of the reasons I, I first was like, well, I'm gonna pay attention to this person, this performer, was that they're like, oh, you know, Sarah plays uh, cross-gender a lot. Whatever the fuck that means. Um, so, you know, I met you while you're doing a production of Romeo and Juliet and you were playing Mercutio. And I was like, yes, that's the perfect Mercutio. That is exactly Mercutio. And you did, um, you did, you sort of played cross-gender at, at you've played both female roles and male roles a lot. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious to know, I'm always curious to know of, Especially, um, especially actors who you know identify maybe more with one gender as the other, but like are also extremely comfortable going back and forth. Is there any point where you are doing something different, where it's like, oh, this is a male character and a female character? Be it the audition process, the rehearsal process, the performance process. Do you differentiate those jobs at all in your mind? Well, um, the gender thing is always evolving for me. I've been, I, I noticed how I used to think about it, um, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, and now how I'm considering it today. And I, I've had a really deep resistance to con considering, I, I think it's minimizes characters to think of them in a sense of gender. Um, and I've worked a ton in Shakespeare. And I just, I think that these plays are I always liken it to like um, just the humanity and that we all have all of these dials and knobs that are genderless, that we can turn up and down as human beings. And we tune those in whatever way we want to, to create whatever human being for whatever play to be in service of whatever story we're telling. Mm -hmm. So I don't like to think about gender when I'm making characters. Now that, is difficult for everybody else around me, including a director. Um, and often it doesn't land on audiences in the way I want it to because they're not looking at it through the same lens as I am. Mm -hmm. People are so quick to want to know, was it a boy or a girl? You know, it's, it's that, that question. I understand why people ask it. I find it to be boring. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and there's just so many more complicated, more nuanced ways to consider these humans that we're trying to tell stories about. Oh. So that's where I am today, you know? I'm sure it'll change. I could not have said that better myself. Like, it's just a boring question. And what does it have? What does that mean? What are you really asking and why? Like, what difference does one answer or the other make? I, I hardly ever know. Um, will you expand a little? Like, I'm sure, like, directors push on that. I've been in that situation, too. They're like, make a decision, make a decision, I, you know. How do you deal with that? Do you just, like, refuse to answer? Or do you compromise? Like, how do you... How do you approach that conversation? I mean, it really depends on the room for me. Um, I, I have really strong politics and a really strong point of view. Um, but I also understand that I'm in a room with people who don't all think and feel the same way that I do. And I love collaboration and I want to honor that. And I want to be able to be on the same team as everybody that I'm working with because I believe that that's part of the agreement um, that's why I'm in that room, because I said yes to collaboration. So it really, really depends um, on who I'm dealing with and what I feel I can and can't say so that I don't, I don't want to take a process hostage. I don't want to alienate myself. So I adjust that in the way that we're all adjusting all the time, right? We're all making little micro adjustments in order to figure out how to get along, get by, learn, grow, you know, whatever it is, or especially as a director, you're always doing that with your actors. Like what's the language that I can use in order to meet the common goal? Um, what I've learned is that sometimes with it, most directors, it's easier for me to not explain my theory of humanity and tuning myself in because uh, it just, it complicates things for people. So, um, it's always different. Isn't it all always different? I wish there were a way, but there's just not a way. Sometimes I feel like I try to have a way, like this is the thing that I do. This is how I approach the problem. And you're right. It is always different. Like the yeah. circumstance and like, you know, you, I love what you said. It's all, all about like, how do we reach the common goal? Like, how do I have to say it to, to, to get you to understand the, the one thing that I need you to understand before we move forward, even if it's not the full thing. Yeah, and if I'm if I'm wanting someone to meet me halfway authentically as who I am, I have to do the same for them, even when I disagree with what I'm seeing coming at me. Um, you know, so it's a delicate dance that we're always always in. And that's very generous of you, I think. Well, um, I mean, that's I'm speaking in ideals. Let's remember. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I've been a nightmare plenty of times. <laughs> I I, I, I wait for the day where we get to be in a rehearsal room together and then I'll tell you whether or not you were a nightmare. I'm okay, curious, great. Though. <laughs> um, I'm curious if, it, um, if you don't mind sharing, like, you know, I love what you said about how you sort of like having waves and, you know, as time goes on, you continually rediscover and have new understandings of your gender. And of course, because gender is changing, the conversations that we're having around it is changing rapidly. Uh, you know, I think of myself like five and 10 years ago was so different, mostly because of like, you know, adolescence and, and self-discovery, but I hope, gender is simultaneously the least and most important thing to me. It's like, okay. I don't care about it at all. And I'm talking about it constantly. Um, and I like, yeah. I have a hard time explaining that to people sometimes. Um, but, 
I, I hope to continually have this like check-in. I'm, I'm still learning new things about what it means to be a trans human and a non-binary human. And I would love to know like anything that you've learned like through the phases of your adulthood um, with regard to gender. Yeah, it's it's been interesting because I feel fortunate to be alive right now um, so that I can, that these are conversations we can have out loud without major repercussions. I'm so grateful that you and I can be having this conversation right now. And so much of my um, learning experience of myself, um, especially an adult, is me looking backwards at myself and finally making sense of things that never made sense to me before. And it's because new language is literally, new language is being created to explain my former self to myself. So it was a big journey of like a lot of shame for me. Um, I mean, I was lucky I had great parents who really let me be who I was and who I was was basically just a little boy when I was little. That was how I identified. Um, that's who I wanted to be. It was how I presented. It was simply who I was. There was no question. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, that got more complicated as I got older. Mm -hmm. Then you add into the mix acting and and doing Shakespeare. And I'm just suddenly playing all of these ingenues who aren't really all that much like me in my real life at all. But so then I'm, you know, then I'm trying to fit into that box. But at the same time, I'm a late teens, early 20s, going through my own process of self-discovery. So there was a lot of shame and a lot of discomfort and also just a, a big part of myself that just shut down and compartmentalized and said like, well, I have to put that aside if I want to um, function, function in the world. So thank God, we're alive now, right? Like, and we can talk about these things and acknowledge those things and that shame and the fear and realize and normalize it and, and hear other people say, me too. Oh my God, me too. These things that feel so private and can be so painful are common as it turns out. So um, working at OSF was a big deal for me because I finally was seen as the kind of artist that I didn't even know I could be. I didn't even dare to dream that I could play uh, a non-binary character, that I could be male presenting on stage, that I could even ask these questions out loud in a rehearsal room. And it really turned on a light switch in me that I will never turn off again because it changed everything for me. Thank you for sharing that. I'm so glad to hear you say that um, because in some ways I think OSF did something very similar for me. Um, a seed that had been planted really got to grow and that will never ever go away. Even if not, even if, even if that place burns to the ground tomorrow, which I hope it doesn't, um, you know, that is a part of our artistry forever. And now you, I think of you, many people think of you as a major, major, major player in the regional Shakespeare scene. We talked about this already. It's not announced. I'm going to spoil it anyway. But Sarah was just announced to be the Associate Artistic Director of both Idaho Shakespeare Festival and Great Lakes Theater. And you are a huge player at OSF as well. So I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of a couple things. I'm thinking of what you said about like new words and how those new words like, like explain so much about ourselves. But our job is we're working with old words. We're working yep. with a lot of old ass words. And you know, if America's Shakespeare 
is this recipe or like this cake and you are like showing up, uh, you are a major ingredient of it to me because you have a hand in all of these major players. Like what is the, what is the ingredient that you're like, I would like this for this to always be in this cake and never ever go away. Like, Oh man, I wish it were just one ingredient. I feel like the cake is missing a lot of ingredients right now. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. And like the oven's broken. I mean, nothing like the kitchen is a disaster. Nothing. It's all messed up. I mean, so I don't know. That's a hard thing to answer. I wish that there were a thing. I think that, um, the gift that has been given to me as an artist and an audience member has been the ability to see myself reflected in multiplicity. So not just how I look, um, but how I feel, who I love, um, what my fears are, what my what my victories are, all of the aspects of us that exist, right? Every single person who comes to the theater deserves to see that reflected back at them. There's no reason that our stages shouldn't be doing that on a physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual level. I think that ingredient is key to art. And I think it's key to the survival of theater. That's to me, that's what makes it matter. So it's trying to figure out how to do that and how to strategically do that so that you're not alienating people along the way, but that you're actually gathering people as you go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we hear it all the time and it sounds like a cliche, but like no words have ever been truer to me that you have to see it to be it. You have to see it. You have to see that other people can occupy that space and can thrive to give yourself the permission to do something that's scary, to do something that's not convenient to the rest of the world. Um, and I, you know, I never will, like, I never worked with another queer woman until uh, uh, in a play or on an artistic staff until I was at OSF. That's a long time to not have that experience to the point where I still get giddy about it. I'm giddy that I get to talk to you, right? It's still a really big deal to me. Yeah. And I have to assume, like you're saying, that this is your experience too, that, that these these things really matter. They, they have an intangible um, reverberation that it gets carried through and it matters moving forward. And it's not measurable sometimes, but it's there. And I'm sorry, I feel like I cut you off. No, you okay. didn't at all. Okay. It's, it's, it's both. I love that you said it's immeasurable because to me, sometimes it's both so slight and so vast. Totally. Like it comes across in the most mundane acknowledgements and gestures and people don't realize how deep of an important of an impact that can have. Um, Oh God, I could. Well, I like could. think about, well, like everybody who's watching right now, right? Like we all have these memories um, that, that we carry with us from the theater, their lines, their visual moments, their colors there. And those things, literally, we take them, we make them ours. They live in our heads and they inform us moving forward. That is really powerful. And it's a huge responsibility that I, I wish we could all take. I don't want to say more seriously, um, but that that we could t take into account more often and trust that it's there. Yeah. Oh, I am so glad to see, to hear and to see that you're holding all these positions. You're also getting a freaking executive MBA. There is nothing you can't do and you are going to be 
I mean, you already are so instrumental, but as you, um, I see you as a, as a, as a glue that will hold that snowball together as we keep just including more and more and more and more. And I'm very grateful for you. Well, that's really generous. Thank you. Of course. <laughs> um, can I give you a little reading? Please, please. Let's do it. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to be, um, I'm going to be shuffling these cards. Um, and I know you ha have an attention and have thought about that. If you, um, anything you want to like invoke into the space, just like a word or a phrase. Healing. Great. Love it. You are so ready. Oh yeah, please. I've been thinking about this all day. <laughs> Great. So we are going to have a little, a little reading on healing. Listen, I don't, I don't really know how to do this. So really treat me like a newbie. Like I'm. You don't have to do. I'm new. To do anything. I'm okay. gonna. Um, all I'm gonna ask you to do is I'm gonna shuffle the cards on camera, um, just so you can see them. And when you're ready, when you feel like it's your card, you just let me know to stop, and then the top one will be yours. And then I'm okay. gonna, I'm gonna talk a little bit about it and ask you what you notice. But you don't, you don't have to do anything. Really. Okay. Stop. Okay, some thoughts on healing. Mm. So the card that um, I just drew, I'm gonna talk a little bit about it and then I'm gonna draw us on it. The card I just brought, drew, is the sun. So the sun is towards the end of the major arcana, it's the third to last. The major arcana is like the 22 major sort of events, goalposts in the circles of all of our lives. And we're always on that circle. The sun is like the moment of brightness and delight and joy after we've experienced so much hardship. We've pushed through so many things. It is an opportunity and an offer to celebrate, vibrate, connect. The sun is like a sudden clarity. It's this moment of wonder that brings relief. Um, and what, you know, what is more deserving? What, what could, I mean, we're all deserving of some sun right now. So I'm going to put a, a little pin in her and then we're going to do the same thing with a sonnet. I'm going to bring that back up on stage, on stage, <laughs> not that I miss it, um, on screen. Stop. Okay. All right. So we got Sonnet 91. Some glory in their birth, some in their skill, some in their wealth, some in their body's force, some in their garments through newfangled ill, some in their hawks and hounds, some in their horse. And every humor hath his adjunct pleasure, wherein it finds a joy above the rest. But these particulars are not my measure. All these I better in one general best. Thy love is better than high birth to me, richer than wealth, prouder than garments cost, of more delight than hawks and horses be. And having thee of all men's pride I boast, wretched in this alone that thou mayst take all this away. 
and me most wretched make. Ugh. Sonnet. I just love it when those sonnets are going and then there's that but, and you're like, no. Oh, I love the turn that they always take. I love it too. I love that this is about like, you know, so much has been taken away from us right now. Yeah. Material possessions, all of the, like all of the blessings and the things that give us, that make us feel good and have us, give us power and give us purpose are like gone. But in this sonnet, the poet is saying like, I don't need all of those things. I have, I have the love of someone who matters to me and that makes me richer than anything else. And the turn is like weird because it's like, and actually you as the person I love are the only person, you're the only person with the power to make me wretched. If you yeah. Do. Yeah. So um, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> I'm going um, to read that to you one more time. Um, okay. And I'm going to, and I'm going to try and show you the card. Can you see it? Okay. Yeah, I can see it. Awesome. Okay. So look at that and and I'll read it again. Some glory in their birth, some in their skill, some in their wealth, some in their body's force, some in their garments through newfangled ill, some in their hawks and hounds, some in their horse. And every humor hath his adjunct pleasure, wherein it finds a joy above the rest. But these particulars are not my measure. All these I better in one general best. Thy love is better than high birth to me, richer than wealth, prouder than garments cost, of more delight than hawks and horses be. And having thee, of all men's pride I boast, wretched in this alone, that thou mayest take all this away, and me most wretched make. What do you notice about the card or the sonnet? Or the well, them? it's making me, I mean, it's, it's, it's where my head was just going was, you know, this kind of, there's the, 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 the visual and, you know, like you can see like the things that she has, everything that she's surrounded with, which is there and she values and it's with her, but none of it exists without the love, the sun, the light. And that, the two sort of work in tandem with one another. They're sort of dependent on one another, but without the sun, you can't see and enjoy any aspect that exists because it's not there to you anymore. Visually, you lose it. Mm -hmm. Shakespeare does this so much with like, um, you know, this, these dichotomies of light and dark and, you know, all of the things that the darkness um, means, in, especially in the sonnets, there's a lot of that antithesis. Um, and I don't actually think I've ever heard that sonnet read aloud before. That was a very good cold reading, by the way. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I, when we, when we think about healing, I just don't know. And even though we're moving into the winter, you know, in, you know, in Idaho and in Chicago, especially when we, you know, the places where we gather when it's cold are not accessible to us. Gosh, what's a more welcome, source of healing than the sun and all of the explosive energy that that offers. And when thinking about it with the sonnet, you know, even in the winter months when we see the sun less, that like explosive energy and power of love is 
is, is the power of a thousand suns to me, is greater than all suns, is the source of the sun, like in some ways. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of noise right now going around us. There's a lot, you know, when it comes to politics or wealth or this or that, I think it's a good opportunity to realize that like, these things that we boast up in our world are actually inferior to the love, to the genuine, joyous, celebratory love that I can share with another person. And so when I'm like thinking about all of these things that have the power to make me wretched, actually it's only the thing that I care about most that has that power. No, no one else gets that. Um, and I know that you create so much art and so much love and so much joy in the world. And I see it like shine through you when you are on stage and when you direct. Thank you, Will. I, I, you know, I've received so much love that I think my job is to try to figure out how to spit it back out again, you know, and, and give it back. I'm a product of a lot of love and trust and forgiveness. Yeah. Um, so that's what, you know, that's what I hope to do. It seems to me like you really do it. And, <laughs> and I can't wait for, I can't wait for where that goes in the future. I can't wait for the next time that brings us together again, um, yeah. which is a moment I will look forward to so much. Um, I can't tell you how thankful I am that you spent this time with us. Wow. What a great way to spend the night. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I was really looking forward to this and I, I am not disappointed. This was, this was great. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I will talk to you soon, I hope, and please stay well. You too. Bye. Mm. Y'all, I am obsessed with Sarah Bruner. And if you were not already obsessed with Sarah Bruner 20 minutes ago, then I just have to assume that you are now. <laughs> So many things about what she offered ooh, just like struck an amazing chord with me. The way she approaches her acting, her creation, <laughs> I loved the image of twisting all the knobs and dials like we're concocting a human experience in a little lab, so to speak. And I remember, like I mentioned, being told, look out for her. Of course I did. But the reason her performances struck me so heavily was not just because she plays with gender or whatever that is. It's because she plays with such incredible authenticity. And that's what makes it so moving. I can tell that she is taking a really good look at herself and a really good look at her character and sort of mapping the Venn diagram of where those two things intersect. And like leaning on that as much as you can, which I think is so exciting. And that's what makes a performance so human and so visceral and so real. And <laughs> for the people who ask, was it a man or a woman? Were you playing it as a man or was it a That is such a reductive, boring question because what does, what does that mean? It just really reinforces our society's gender essentialism. I can't consider anything about the story or the character. I'm so stuck until I know whether it is a man or whether it is a woman. Like, my brain cannot move past that. So, you know, if you find yourself at the theater and you find yourself tripping on that question or you hear someone else doing it, 
I encourage you to think about why you need to know that. I'm not judging. Our entire society hinges upon that, so I understand why we're trained to get stuck on that question. But why? What does it mean? Our brains have to make these assignments or separate into these categories in order to move past. And I think our society ingrains that in a way that is just not necessary. It's not necessary for our survival. It's just not necessary. I track that when I'm walking around on the sidewalk. Like if I'm presenting particularly androgynous on a particular day, I notice that people will just look at me a little bit longer than they look at everyone else. Or they'll sort of be looking at me until I get close enough for their brain to make a decision about whether they think I am a man or a woman. I think we all do this. I'm sure I've done it too. Why have we taught our brains to work that way? And how can we unlearn that? I think the best way to start is to have that epiphany of how is that serving me? I don't know what the answer is, but I'm leaving space for the possibility that it doesn't serve you for anything. Let's just consider that possibility. So anyway, the way that Sarah approaches her creation of the human condition on stage is so inspiring to me because she's unfettered by all that. What an unnecessary thing to get bogged down by. That binary sense of creation. Sounds very uncreative to me. <laughs> so in my own work, in putting together my own solo show with Erin, her approach, especially to classic characters, is so moving to me. When I think about being on stage and playing many different characters in the same evening and not being hung up on performing their gender in any way, I get the opportunity to think about just what parts of myself interact with what parts of this person and their experience, the character's humanity. As actors, we think about empathy as like, walking a mile in someone else's shoes and putting yourself in someone else's experience. But to me, that doesn't make me a different person. And I'm like <laughs> becoming this whole other entity. I'm like, no, what if actually I, Will, were in that experience with the same set of experiences and knowledge and life and humanity that I already have experienced. And now I'm just adding those new circumstances on top of it. So what Sarah does so brilliantly is she brings herself in that way. She doesn't erase herself and then put herself in that experience. She brings all of herself to that experience. So thank you, Sarah. You rock. I want to see more people doing it like you, and I'm trying to do the same. One other thing I think is important to draw out from that conversation, and by the way, to be honest with you, the literal second that that interview ended, I immediately went back and watched it from the top. Because as a host of the series, I have to reserve 5 to 10% of my brain space on other things and taking care of audience and making sure the backgrounds are working, all this other stuff. But I was being hit with so much incredible truth and feeling so grateful for it that I immediately needed to go back and experience it once again just as audience. Just to sit back and let Sarah's experience make me feel... <laughs> so seen and so validated and so wonderful. She is obviously a huge inspiration to me. 
So the other thing that I think was really important that she brought out was when she was talking about compartmentalization and having to put parts of her self or identity or thought processes or ideas or dreams or feelings literally on the back burner to just function, to literally get through the day. That really struck a chord with me, especially thinking of myself as a teenager, as a high schooler in Midwest suburbia. I had a really hard time putting words to my experience in the moment, the sort of overarching sadness and also guilt because I was growing up in a very upper middle class, privileged environment where I could and should have wanted for nothing was how I felt. But I had no access to sort of representation or community in the way that I needed it. There was a huge component of my childhood that I feel was simply disassociation. And I didn't really have words to explain why I was never dropped in or grounded or embodied. But the reason is was because I didn't have access to myself and to my authenticity. Being able to share that with other people now, and like Sarah said, finding out how other people have had these experiences and I can create connections and we can find solace in each other is really important, is really key. That's part of the reason why representation and authenticity and representation is so freaking important. And I'm so grateful to Sarah for being a champion of that as she has been for a long time and will continue to be for a long time. Once again, kudos to Sarah, the new executive MBA. Come on, executive realness. And thank you as well to our incredible team at Tea Cakes and Tarot Conversations with Queer Futurists. They are my co-creator, Aaron Murray, our graphic designer, Ray Catherine Morgan, our producer, the Island Shakespeare Festival, and our sound engineer, Orion Schwalm. And thank you to you for listening. If you like what you heard, and I hope that you did, give us a rate, a review, a like, and a subscribe. All right, as is customary, I will leave you now with one more reading of Sonnet 91. Some glory in their birth, some in their skill, some in their wealth, some in their body's force, some in their garments, though newfangled ill, some in their hawks and hounds, some in their horse. And every humor hath his adjunct pleasure, wherein it finds a joy above the rest, but these particulars are not my measure. All these I better in one general best. Thy love is better than high birth to me, richer than wealth, prouder than garments cost, of more delight than hawks and horses be. And having thee, of all men's pride I boast, wretched in this alone, that thou mayst take all this away and me most wretched make. Honey, love yourself deeply and fiercely because you just never know when that gives someone else permission to do the same. Until the next time, keep on shining.